Libertà is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a new bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. A quick shout out to the entire team at SubChina, especially Kaiser Kuo, editor and co-producer, as well as Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we get the chance to hear from Samantha Kwok, founder of Jing Jobs, an online and offline platform dedicated to connecting China-focused startups and fresh bilingual talent. Over the last four years, Jing Jobs has serviced over 800 companies and provided countless opportunities to young professionals based in Beijing and Shanghai. Samantha and I got on the line to revisit what it was like starting a company at 22 in the volatile and often confusing Beijing business climate. We also dig into the biggest HR hurdles faced by both U.S. and Chinese companies and how Chinese businesses plan to grow in scale. Samantha really has her finger on the pulse of what's happening. Let's take a listen. Hi, everyone from Ta for Ta. This is Juliana. And today we are really excited to have Samantha Kwok, the founder of Jing Jobs, on the show today. And she's actually in Beijing right now. So we're really excited to have you as a guest on Ta for Ta. Thank you so much. No, this is really exciting. <laughs> Great. <laughs> And so I actually think I wanted to start learning a little bit more about where the idea for Jing Jobs came about and how this company really came to fruition. Where did the idea come from? How did you kind of get those initial starting points off the ground? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I think, honestly, I was very lost when I graduated from university. You know, I did a Bachelor of Arts majoring in, in economics and social science, which doesn't give you a very clear career path. And I think because of that and because of the fact that I grew up in Hong Kong but didn't learn Mandarin, but was very aware of, you know, how China will and was already, like, very important, I decided to take six months off and well, take six months after graduation and, and learn Mandarin. So that's how I actually came to Beijing from Sydney, where I was living before. Essentially, during my my time here, the first six months, I met, you know, a lot of young professionals, um, young students, just young people in general that were also trying to find their way in the world, not just, you know, in China, but just with key questions about, you know, how they can start their careers, what is the best way to start your career. You know, they were very aware of, certain things that you had to, I guess, do in order to one day be what society perceives as successful. And so a lot of them actually didn't know what their value in the job market was either. So a lot of them didn't know how to negotiate salary. A lot of them didn't know how to pick job offers if they were getting a few. And so I think for me, I really saw that as something that I could potentially fill. And not in the sense that I could help them with career advice and stuff, but just really providing detailed job opportunities, giving the full picture of, you know, what the company culture really was, providing workshops and just a safe space where job seekers can actually provide each other resources. So more of a peer-to-peer mm. resource sharing um, type of situation and then also inviting experts in to, to help them in terms of just guiding them in the right direction. Because, you know, I mean, sometimes job seeking can be a very isolating process. And me going through that myself post-graduation, it just really had a big impact on me. And so I think 
Jing Jobs really started out just as not necessarily any kind of like business opportunity. It started out as me meeting a lot of people and and feeling this common, I guess, thread through all of them and um, wanting to kind of start a community. So it was really more of a grassroots community type of thing to begin with. And then that kind of morphed into more of the business model that we have today where, um, you know, we're more of a recruitment consulting firm and we, we specialize in bilingual talent just because that was the kind of crowd that I was exposed to when I first got here. Yeah. And also just to make this clear about context, we think LinkedIn is something that's always been a part of our job seeking process, our professional networks. This really wasn't something that was around in 2013. And so can you also walk through even a little bit more in detail what it was like being in China, trying to find a job without having all of these professional social networks at your disposal? It must have felt even more so then that there was a need for it. Yeah, I think being an expat and being someone who didn't really have any network or connections here until I, you know, developed my own while I was studying Mandarin was something that I found was very hindering to my ability to actually source jobs that could potentially be suitable. I believe that there is a need for job boards, but I don't actually, and you know, my, my website is essentially a job board, but I don't believe in it being the most effective way of finding jobs just purely because you're applying as a random against you know a hundred a thousand other randoms and people um, at companies are always looking for referrals and referrals just have so much more value over a random um, you know automated application through a job board and so I feel job boards are necessary for job seekers to do research I think it's really important to be able to know what's out there to know like how your skill set and your strengths fit in with the market. But in terms of applying through a job board, I, I actually, you know, strongly believe that that's not the best way to go about it or the most efficient or effective way. People's referrals through networks and getting recommendations and actually meeting people in person and making a bit of an impact through, you know, a, a networking event or something like that, that's always going to have a lot more pull. But in terms of your question about LinkedIn, yes. So, 2013, there was no LinkedIn presence here yet. And myself trawling through Chinese job boards, I found it extremely messy, confusing. Also, being a foreigner, you don't know if you're qualified to do this job because, you know, a lot of them are aimed at Chinese nationals. A lot of companies Mm. are restricted in terms of not being able to hire a foreigner. So essentially, you know, having being bilingual and and being a native English speaker, um, I really wanted to use that skill set specifically. And so trawling through job boards and, and looking at thousands and thousands of job posts ranging from, you know, like. CEO through to like dishwasher at a restaurant, it it was just making me even more and more confused. And um, a lot of job posts in Chinese and and on Chinese job boards don't really emphasize company culture or what that company is or what that company stands for. They basically just tell you what industry that company is in and how many people work at that company. And so that really didn't resonate with me because I wanted to work for a company or, or for something that I actually truly believed in or something where I knew that I would fit in with that company culture and with that team and and these job boards don't provide that so yeah that that was also um, a key issue so I started uh, networking a lot because I found that online was just not effective especially without LinkedIn Um, however in Beijing it's it's an extremely vibrant dynamic city and there are always like so many events focusing on so many different topics and industries so um, it was pretty easy to be able to kind of just like find my niche 
that way. Right. So you arrived in Beijing and then you decided, okay, maybe I'm not going to join a company that exists out there. I'm going to start something of my own. And I see this need in the market here in a a very burgeoning market probably at the time. Mm. What next? What happened was I was with a friend in a cab and I was like, you know, if I was going to do this, what would it be called? And he was like, what about Jing Jobs? We're in the Jing and people looking for jobs and uh, it's catchy. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. And that's kind of what really solidified me deciding to start it was that I had a name. And so I gave myself a year and I said, if I manage to turn this into some sort of business model that actually is sustainable um, within a year and I figure out how to do that, I'd keep going. And if in a year I wasn't able to and it was still a bit of a messy concept and I didn't understand how exactly the market worked here, then you know I would just kind of say like, okay, that was a, a cool uh, learning experience and I would just push on onto something else. So I, I really took that year very seriously in terms of figuring out a lot of different things. I made like so many mistakes. Um, it was a lot of trial and error. Coming from uh, Australia, the, the HR market is very different there. The way people do things are very different there. Learning how to uh, network with uh, Chinese HR managers was extremely hard. There were a lot of different learning curves that I had to kind of go through. And then also, you know, st- when I started hiring my first staff, learning how to manage people who were actually much older than me, because I was only 22 at the time, was was also very terrifying. And so I think that that first year was really crucial. I had like so many mental breakdowns. But after that year, I kind of figured out, you know, I, I do have something. And I did manage to get the ball rolling. And I didn't want the ball to stop rolling. And so I, I kept pushing. Mm. Let's dig into some of those mistakes. Let's talk about what it was like just getting acquainted with the HR market in China, what it was like starting a company in in Beijing. What does that even entail? How do you, do you have an entrepreneurial visa? How did you figure out these aspects of growing and building the foundation of a services-oriented company? Right. What so- was that like? Tell me about some of these mistakes. And what you learned. I think the fact that in Hong Kong even and in Australia, opening a business takes like three days a week max. You know, you just fill out some forms, open up a bank account and you start rolling. Being a foreigner in China, I mean, even though technically I'm, I'm from Hong Kong and I have a Hong Kong passport, being a foreigner in China uh, means that you can only open a certain type of company, means that you have to put down a minimum amount of capital, and it means that you know sometimes the process takes up to like ten months long unless you have uh, an agent who knows you know obviously what exactly to do and who exactly to talk to. Uh, I chose to do it on my on my own just mainly because I was stubborn and very naive. I ended up having to wait 10 months and submitting my forms like three or four times and getting help from, you know, my dad's secretary to push that through. And so I think definitely looking back now, if I had had like, you know, invested in an agent or or a consulting firm that can help open um, Woofies, I think that would have been pushed through a lot faster. So waiting that long was a little bit frustrating. But in the meantime, I was able to kind of build up the community um, and focus more on solidifying my candidate pool and, and my niche. So given that I knew bilingual job seekers were, you know, one side of my um, platform, the other side, I decided to focus on startups, uh, mainly just because I was attending so many events 
events where I was listening to, you know, founders and really passionate people talk about their product or talk about their service and how they're about to change the world. And that was just so inspiring compared to reading some of the job ads online where they were like, this is so-and-so company and we work in manufacturing or, you know, whatever, like without hearing that, you know, soul piece to it. And so listening to all of these founders kind of describe how they are trying to make an impact made me really want to help them. And uh, at the time, they were also struggling, mainly just because in China, I was figuring out talking to more and more job seekers that startups were viewed as unstable. I mean, right now, they're viewed as unstable, but still a very trendy and fast growth industry, especially in tech startups. And so a lot of people are willing to take that risk now. But, you know, five years ago, a lot of job seekers were unsure if this company would still exist in a year and therefore didn't want to take the chance of starting their job at a company where, you know, everything was just so unstable in terms of career path and seen as a little bit chaotic. And so startups were actually having a very hard time attracting, you know, good talent as well. So um, I found that, you know, maybe these two pockets of people and and companies would really mesh well together. Mm. And so you think that the perception now has changed that even though the startup market is potentially volatile, it's exciting and it's considered more prestigious and there's a lot of, yeah, just excitement around startups in Beijing. Yeah, definitely. I think just the amount of investment that you see people pumping into different startups and ideas is one, obviously, very exciting just because if you see that, you know that this company will at least have a run rate of a few more years than just one year. (laughs) And then also, I think you just see it on the news so much. um, And then you also see the government really pushing for entrepreneurship and pushing for entrepreneurs to start these ideas. And so I think, um, yeah, definitely now it's much easier and um, much more trendy, I guess, for people to Mm. apply for jobs at startups versus five years ago, where it was kind of more, you were putting everything on the line to work for a startup that may or may not exist in in a few months down the line. There must have been a moment for you where you started to realize I can't be the sole trailblazer for Jing Jobs and that I need to grow my team. Was Mm -hmm. there a specific moment that that happened for you? It was very clear in that first year what my strengths and what my weaknesses were. And I think after clearly identifying my weaknesses and especially making mistakes due to those weaknesses, I really kind of, that really spurred me on into into trying to build a team. I think I was actually very scared to build a team to begin with just because I didn't have, you know, um, a reputation. I was young. I'm not from China. There were just so many things that were giving me not necessarily like low self-esteem, but I just was very not confident in my ability to lead a team. Um, And so I think it took me a while to kind of come around and then just kind of say, you know, this is what the business needs and I need to put my own fears aside. And so that's when I really started looking for people. And I started out with um, looking for an assistant, mainly just because I was having so much trouble dealing with the tax system here, the, the how accounting works and how bookkeeping works here specifically. I mean, finance was never my strong suit to begin with. So that was definitely something that I knew I needed. And so I got a um, an assistant who who 
basically has now morphed into um, one of the key people on my team, um, which has been amazing because she's been with me for for so long. But yeah, she definitely helped in terms of just clearing things up. And she came from a background where she had been a CEO's assistant before, but for a very large company. And she really didn't like that company. And so her taking a chance on me was was amazing. But she brought with her, you know, knowledge of systems and how certain processes need to be put in place. And she really helped me grow from just a a one person kind of like scrappy, let's hustle every day kind of operation to, you know, actually having certain things to make this a little more scalable uh, and a little more legit in a way. So uh, she was really vital to that. And I think bringing someone like that on board to balance out the kind of, I guess, my personality where I'm kind of more big picture and like, let's just go out there and talk to as many people as we can and get this running and get this off the ground without really thinking through more long term um, was great. You led me into your, the next question I really wanted to ask you is, he said, I knew what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. What do you find that you were uniquely, how did you, that you had a unique strength in? Um, I think I'm just very goal driven. And in that sense, I made it my goal to get to a certain number of followers on uh, social media to get to a certain number of people that I would talk to at each networking event to get to a certain number of trial clients um, within the first four months of developing my actual service. Um, And so I really just focused on that. That was like, I, it's like I had blinkers on and all I wanted to do was just talk to as many people as possible and then get them to talk to as many people as possible. And, and I thought that that was like the best way to get this off the ground and, and the fastest way to get the ball running. Like I was bootstrapping everything. So I had like, you know, no marketing budget. I had basically no budget at all. I, I put my savings into building a website. And so, yeah, I think for me, that was the only thing that I wanted to focus on. And, and it turns out that that's one of my strengths and something that I just discovered along the way is that, you know, I'm not scared to talk to as many people as I can. I'm not scared to go to, you know, as many networking events as I can and just make those connections. And yeah, that was, I guess, uh, something that I realized really was helpful because, you know, if you sit there and plan all day and uh, I guess for, for someone who was in the position that I was in with, you know, limited resources and limited capital, it really wasn't going to do much. I, I really just needed to get out there and build this, like basically door to door, I guess, in some sort of way where I would just talk to as many different groups of people as I could. So that was really how I got my first pool of job seekers. And I managed to get probably about 20,000 candidates within the first year, which was, incredible. which was why... Uh, you know, I decided to push through to the next year. But that's, uh, that's unfortunately only one side of, of business, um, which I learned. So yeah. What does rejection feel like? And how do you push through rejection? Re- rejection in what sense? You know, you're trying to get people onto the platform, uh, or you're trying to work with different business partners, right. and they either don't believe in the idea, or they don't believe in the direction that you're headed in any form of rejection. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it's, it's discouraging, especially when you're first starting out and you're trying to make something happen, but it just made me realize like, you know, Beijing is full of people. Like China is full of people. There there are 20 million (laughs) people here, you know, like one rejection is really not, um, 
it's it's not a reason to not continue, you know. And so I every time I had a rejection, I just kind of made sure I got feedback, like why, like what is it about the service that you wouldn't try, or is it you know the price model? Is it the way um, that I pitched it to you? Is it just because you're not currently in need of hiring you and you don't have any problems? And so each rejection, I just took that as a way to kind of figure out what exactly it is that I could do to bring value to them. Um, And so the HR Butler service, which is what we call our signature service now, is something that I've actually changed multiple times. And and it has evolved a few times just based off each rejection that I got um, from especially potential clients. And then also in terms of job seekers, it is tough because, you know, everyone is looking for a job in a different industry. Everyone is looking for a job that is of a certain seniority, whether uh, I I don't offer every position on the planet um, on my website. And I think that is something that that I took to heart at the beginning, but then I realized that, you know, to really succeed in a humongous market here, you just need to find your specialty and you just need to find your niche. And, and my niche happened to be startups and, and bilingual talent. And so if I didn't offer positions at big MNCs or if I didn't offer positions at, you know, certain industries, I, I decided that that was just something that I was going to just have to accept and, and, you know, focus on what I wanted to focus on. Actually, now that you bring up the HR Butler service, can you tell listeners a little bit more about what the new service looks like? It all kind of started when I was trying to figure out what my business model was. And mainly because, you know, my my first inspiration was so job seeker focused. And I really wanted to help job seekers find, you know, their passion, their careers, uh, help them connect with amazing employers. Um, I was struggling at the beginning to find the business model that I wanted to use because I didn't want to charge job seekers. You know, I figured young people just out of college with debt looking for a job, you know, those are not the kinds of people that you want to suddenly charge a humongous fee, you know, to help them. And so I really wanted to focus on how I could charge companies instead. And so I decided right off the bat, I didn't want to be a headhunter. I thought that that model was very outdated and a bit broken. Mm. And given that I was talking to so... Um, just because it is extremely expensive. I mean, you know, headhunters take a, a two-month um, fee, uh, like t- two months of salary, basically, um, as their fee for a successful placement. Um, for startups that are looking to place, you know, mainly junior to mid-level talent, they're not looking for big-time directors that have, you know, 10, 20 years of experience. Um, and they need to fill most of the time. Like once they have a round of funding come in, they are, they're going to want to expand their team from like 10 to 50 or 50 to 500. Do you know what I mean? And so they're, they're looking yeah. to hire multiple people for one particular role or multiple people for one particular department. And so I decided to focus on connecting people in batches of what was 10 is now five. Um, so for each role that I get assigned by my client, so the company, um, we'll provide five candidates that we've sourced and screened. So you know that they're a, a good fit and they have the right skill set for the role mm. and then connect those people to the clients for a affordable service fee. So essentially they can hire zero, they can hire all five, it'll be for the same fee. Um, so we're mainly just focusing on connections and making sure that we're bringing value in terms of filling their pipeline with amazing candidates that they can use now, that they can you know connect with later. And then this way it also gives job seekers more of an opportunity to interview. So we don't, we don't, 
ever guarantee a job, but we do kind of make sure that they get that extra recommendation from us so that they land that interview. Um, so it's kind of like a win-win situation for both. That makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that you mentioned, or you at least been quoted on, is that you think human resources can be borderless. And I was wondering if you could expand on why you think that should be a fundamental truth. I think when I first got here, I was so focused on, you know, am I Chinese? Am I a foreigner? But the more I delved into learning about the HR market and the more I realized that, you know, how how far companies are willing to go for good talent, you know, HR can be borderless. I think if you are what you call like a, a high quality candidate or someone that has, you know, an amazing skill set that is extremely unique and very valuable to a particular company, then, you know, I, I do believe that job seekers could find that perfect job anywhere. But it is just all about being able to develop that unique skill set and being able to tell your story in a way that really convinces the employer that you are the one. But yeah, I think that just really stemmed from my experience here when I first got here of understanding what it meant to be to be a foreigner versus a, a local Chinese and coming from Hong Kong where it's kind of like a, a bit of a gray area. It was just interesting to explore that. And then when I was trying to position myself in, um, you know, different jobs and different companies, figuring out how and where I fit in, um, I realized that it really is just based on skill set. If you have a great skill set, it doesn't matter who you are. And so in terms of HR in China, do you think HR is still a big issue for SMEs and startups with a focus on foreign-owned businesses? It really depends on the industry. I do think that SMEs in general and um, smaller startups without a ton of funding, especially in the tech sector, are losing out just mainly because a lot of salaries right now are a little bit inflated due to large amounts of funding that go into particular startups and particular concepts that uh, mm. you know inflate. Um, inflate people's salaries a lot. And so SMEs or, or, or smaller startups that are not getting that amount of funding who can't offer those salaries, um, and even, you know, uh, international MNCs where they they were the preferred choice of work, I think, in the past. But now, given that, you know, you, it could be more financially rewarding to work for a startup for a couple of years, a lot of people do lose out to that good talent, mainly because of that inflation in salary. Um, but also just because I think a lot of people are curious as to what it's like to work for, you know, a fast growth tech company, which, you know, I mean, you can see, for example, even like Mobike going from 50 people, uh, you know, a couple of years ago to thousands now, um, what it is like to work in an environment like that. How does that insane growth happen? I feel like all the time you turn around and suddenly companies across the spectrum in China have just ballooned to extreme proportions. How does that happen so quickly? Um, How does HR even have the capacity to handle something like that? Yeah, it is a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. I mean, like I was approached by um, a couple of uh, tech companies uh, just last year who needed, um, they were going international. And so they needed a lot of bilingual job seekers to kind of mm. bridge that gap between the international department and then the local Chinese department. And so they approached me and they kind of said, you know, we need, we have a 50 person headcount for, for this department. And then we have a hundred person headcount for this department. And what roles can you help us fill? And, and how many people can you provide? And that was just astounding to me just because 
because, you know, I have a small team of 10 and we don't normally get requests like that. But it, it is really impressive to be able to see and, and kind of experience that growth. Uh, and we, we ended up did helping with a couple of roles, but um, it, it wasn't actually feasible for us to, to help with all of their roles just because they were hiring so quickly and so fast and, and they always need candidates like yesterday. <laughs> so um, so it is extremely um, high pressure as well to be able to, to deliver and actually help them solidify their team in time for their deadlines. I was going to ask you, have you ever received requests from client companies that were just out of your bounds to be able to fill. And it seems like when that happens, you focus maybe on a few positions that you can really do well. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like in the end, it's it's really just about being able to provide as much value as we can and trying to do too much and stretching my team too much. You know, it wouldn't please anyone. And so I was very honest about that um, and said that we'd be able to kind of deliver on these particular roles and connect them with X amount of candidates between, you know, this date and this date. And so just being able to do that, I knew that I was providing value for, you know, one particular department in maybe a couple of different roles. And that was more than enough for me and for my team. Um, and, and you know, it, it made them happy in the end because uh, we did actually manage to fulfill what we promised, um, no matter how small um, it ended up being. But yeah, I think impact in the end, is impact. Exactly. Value, like bringing value is, is key. And so uh, I didn't want to kind of stretch us too thin. Yeah. And so my assumption is that often when you're working with clients, the clients from the company side is that it's often the HR departments that you're triaging with. And especially considering that you have this exposure in Australia, Hong Kong, and China, if you had unlimited resources and you were able to organize and bring together coalitions or what have you for HR in China, where would you want to see the greatest dedication of efforts towards growing and developing HR in China? I think that definitely my exposure to uh, Australia in particular has made me see that, um, you know, it's really important for equal opportunity um, and to truly just base your assessment of the talent on skill set um, and exactly how great of a fit they are to the role in that sense rather than anything else. And so definitely equal opportunity would be um, a key area that I think would need to be developed here a little more. Um, I think also just the general perception of HR as being very strategic um, and high-level management. I think here in China, I've noticed that a lot of times HR is not considered to be a huge part of long-term management strategy be just because you know there are so many people here and it is quite easy or can be quite easy to replace some junior slash, you know, more mid-level roles. And so talent retainment would be one definitely that I think could be improved, mm. um, as well as putting more effort into understanding that, you know, each employee is valuable and how it affects this business is actually very significant. And that, you know, hiring key talent is extremely vital to whether a company succeeds or not and that HR is not necessarily just purely seen as admin or you know paperwork or I guess you know HR policy um, making sure that that's implemented so I think um, those are kind of the key areas that I see in terms of differences or or, or 
if I had unlimited resources, things that I would want to be able to change. But in that sense, you know, HR in China is fascinating, given that there are so many people here and it's it's very fragmented because there is, you know, in Australia, there's there's 20 million people in the entire country. And so having one or two different job sites and kind of figuring out who to hire is a lot easier that way compared with, you know, say for larger corporations, for one role, they could get up to 2,000 people applying, 3,000 people applying for that one role. And being able to sort through and assess all of that talent on such a big scale is definitely, it's just fascinating. Do you think that ever, given these supply and demands in the market, do you think that ever draws down salaries for junior level talent? Do you think that that ever creates wonky sort of supply and demand situations that you've ever noticed? I think what I've seen in the last like five years is definitely just the fact that expats or foreigners definitely find it a lot harder to get those expat packages these days. I I think just given that Chinese talent, you know, a lot of overseas returnees are coming back with great English and the same understanding of or a similar understanding of, you know, what that other market is, um, whether it be the UK or or Australia or the US or whatever. And and they come back and they're actually able to fill that skill set that companies originally needed expats to fill. And so I think right now, like the main thing that I really do see a lot is just that, you know, there's no such thing as an expat salary and a Chinese local salary. I think now there is actually a lot more fierce competition for expats to be able to land great jobs here, just mainly because, you know, their skill sets are not as unique as they as they used to be, especially for the junior roles. I think for more senior roles, um, for, yeah, for, for roles that require very, very niche and specific skill set, definitely those are still, you know, obviously high in demand for whoever can fill them, given that talent is rare in those areas. But just in general, I would say uh, definitely it'd be, it'd be tough to find those expat packages in China in the, in the next few years. So for junior level talent or even bilingual talent, is there anything that you've noticed in terms of trends recently for the China market? Is there anything that's new and emerging that you're paying attention to? I'm assuming because you have this broad spectrum view of everything that's going on? Um, I think just in general, not necessarily just bilingual talent, but I'm seeing um, a lot of candidates and a lot of profiles with, you know, fresh out of college, but four, five, six internships under their belt. Um, And I think that's just a reflection of exactly how competitive it is now. You know, a bachelor's degree, sometimes even a master's degree is not enough to set you apart. It's, It's honestly just how much relevant work experience you have, how much work experience you have. Very few companies that I come across now, unless it's a a fresh graduate program or uh, it's a specific, you know, extremely entry level position where they hire people right out of college. Do I see companies really accepting candidates who have zero or one years uh, or zero or one um, internship experience? So um, I think right now the, the key difference that I see from from, you know, previous years is that people are understanding more and more how important it is to um, set yourself apart and develop key, you know, work skills from the get-go. And so it's, you know, amazing to see people with, you know, five, six, seven internship experiences from, you know, just doing them during the summer holidays or or whatever, you know, by the time they graduate, they've already basically had a solid, you know, year, two years of working experience. So I think, really interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that's key. It's like, uh, it's, it's different. It's definitely, you know, before having a bachelor's set you apart. And then, you know, after that, it was having a master's that set you apart. And now it's kind of like those two things are also no longer enough to make you competitive. Hmm. Now, 
Jing Jobs is in a more mature state. Where is it going next? What's next for you? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I think for for me in particular, I feel the last few years have been like a, a huge learning curve. Um, just because I've had to kind of tackle so many different business functions and, you know, when things don't go to plan, being able to adapt. For me, uh, going through this process was obviously extremely valuable in terms of developing my skill set and what, you know, pushing my boundaries and knowing what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of. And again, like finding out my strengths and weaknesses. I think for the company in general now, operations are extremely smooth and I have a great team, which is obviously vital to any company. I think just moving forward, it's really being able to scale up and being able to solidify the Butler service without modifying it too much for each client. I think I've realized that HR, it's, it's really hard for it to be scalable. At first, I really wanted to kind of like build something that was very standardized and uh, something that was quite rigid in terms of, you know, one process for all. But given that every company has different hiring needs, every company is expecting different levels of, you know, candidates and, and different timeframes, you know, this role's urgent, this role we're looking to hire within the next six months, like everyone's expectations are so different and HR is such a people-driven area that it is For really, sure. really hard to scale something like that and kind of implement as much technology as another industry. But I think for us in general, it's really just kind of growing slowly. I've never really wanted to kind of be one of those companies that just grows at a crazy rate. I mean, even if I did have the resources and the funding and whatever to to do that just because I think that you know slow and steady for me is like what I was able to handle and also something I just want to build something sustainable I think a lot of times people are very focused on growth and not very focused on whether this will last 10 years 20 years 30 years and so I think for me that's important but also just continuing to to bring value I think as long as I'm making an impact and as long as the company's making an, an impact and a good impact that's all that you know I really set out to do would you like to consider yourself a serial entrepreneur? Is that something that you think is in your cards? Um, I definitely like being a part of projects from the start, and I definitely like building things up from, you know, from zero. But I definitely think that uh, going through this experience has made me realize exactly how tiring it can be. Um, mm. And it can be a, a real strain, especially the first few years where you really do have to make a lot of sacrifices to to make things work. Um, and so I think for me, you know, maybe I'll start another company in, in the future. But for now, I would definitely need a little bit of a break to begin with. It's it's pretty, it's pretty tiring. <laughs> it's relentless, I can imagine. And looking back, would you have started Jing Jobs at 21 years old? I've been asked this before, and I think I've given a couple of different answers depending on what mood I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> what um, mood are you in today? <laughs> I think there are two parts to it. Uh, one, ignorance is bliss. So I think the fact that I had, I guess, the courage or whatever you want to call it to start this and do it was really because I didn't know any better. And I was still very naive in the sense that, you know, I thought everything would just work out. Like if you if you followed the steps or if you put in, and you know, 100%, you were guaranteed to make something of it. Or, or be successful to some extent or whatever. And the more I kind of played it out, the more I realized how wrong I was. And that I think 
I made a lot of mistakes and I have wasted a lot of time. I feel like, you know, if I had worked for someone or worked in the industry for, you know, a big player before starting my own thing, I, I definitely would have avoided a lot of the mistakes that I made. And I think that given that I, you know, had to learn everything really quickly, I feel like there may still be some gaps in my knowledge just purely because I had to rush through it. But at the same time, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would trade the experience that I've had just because if I had started off in an entry-level job or if I had started off in a grad program or whatever, I, I definitely wouldn't have been exposed to, you know, the, the business decisions I had to make or managing the team that I had to manage, um, making the choices or decisions in terms of partnerships, figuring out how to get through, you know, months that were a little tough, like all of those things I definitely wouldn't have learned in another environment or another scenario. So I definitely think in that sense, from for my learning and for my for my own personal growth, I definitely wouldn't trade that. But definitely in terms of how smooth things could have gone or how much better things could have gone, I definitely do always kind of think like mm, maybe I should have waited a little bit but then you know if I'd waited a little bit and I'd figured out everything that I would have figured out you know would I have still thought this was a good idea so definitely like two sides to it you know one thing we haven't even touched upon and I want to hear a little bit more from you about is you were really there in the early days of the Beijing Women's Support Network right mm-hmm. 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 and what role has that played in your life living, working, growing a business in Beijing? I honestly, I think it was, I was so lucky and it was just really fate for me to meet the women that I met. Um, Jesse and Oma, they were, they were the two original, I guess, um, founders of um, Beijing Women's Network and they had started off the meetups. Essentially, the, the story behind it is that, you know, a lot of young professionals here in China, especially women, didn't feel like they were getting the right support or the right guidance um, or the right mentorship within their current companies and their current roles. Um, a lot of times, you know, like, like I mentioned before in China, staff retainment is not necessarily a huge integral part of HR. And it's, it's not really even a KPI sometimes. Yeah. It's not even something that people get judged on their performance in an HR capacity. Exactly. And so I think a lot of people were feeling that they were missing and that they were hitting, you know, a plateau within their current role or that they weren't being able to, you know, build on new skills or progress or, will, you know, would they ever get that promotion because they're, they're not building on their skills. They're just kind of performing the same routine tasks every day. So a lot of them were feeling a little stuck. So 12, it started off with 12 women that would meet up regularly and kind of, um, you know, share these things, share resources, share ideas on how exactly they could kind of go about this. And and then that kind of grew into 30, 50. Um, and now we've hit 4,000. And so when I joined, there were maybe about 100 wow. people, 100 people that were part of this network that would meet up offline regularly. But then also, you know, we had WeChat groups to kind of constantly be sharing information and sharing resources and kind of venting and whatever you needed to do. You know, people were just trying to create a more positive environment for you to kind of feel safe. For me, I was feeling a little isolated in that first year of, of entrepreneurship, especially because I was a, a solo founder. Um, and so, you know, attending all these networking events, I saw one for, you know, Beijing women. And I was like, well, you know, I'm in Beijing and I'm a woman. So let's just go along, see what happens. But then I got there and I was like, oh, my God, this is like what I was looking for. You know, I've attended entrepreneur meetups here where, you know, I would be the only girl in the room. I've attended other networking events where people were... Um, 
people were sometimes a little patronizing just mainly because I feel maybe I was young and I came across young and they didn't think that someone my age should be you know running and starting a company and so I did sometimes feel a little bit out of the loop but just finding these this this group of women like really changed everything in terms of feeling like I had the support feeling like I had a safe space where I could also vent about my problems and I didn't need to be all you know oh yeah my company's amazing and this is what's happening and we're growing so fast and you know all these things that entrepreneurs say just to just to put up that that shield or or that um that facade that you know everything's going great and their company's great and la 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 and so yeah finding these women were it was awesome and and when i when i joined it was maybe like a hundred people and then jesse and oma the the founding members kind of asked me if i would help uh lead one of their initiatives which was a professional development series where every month we would focus on inviting experts in to talk about particular themes so you know whether it's navigating career transitions or whether it's you know how to get that promotion building management skills you know we would invite experts to kind of discuss that theme and have like an open kind of like q a panel and so i that really fit in with you know obviously my values as well as you know what I had actually set out to do with Jing Jobs and everything just kind of fit and so um, so that's kind of when I joined the founding team and yeah I mean it's it's really great to be able to see that growth and see that need being fulfilled and you know we run as a charity well we run it as a nonprofit we donate all of our profits that we get from our events to our partner charity of the year which is always women focused so this year what is the partner charity this year the partner charity is CC Garden um, um, and they provide uh, sexual health seminars and sexual health workshops for disadvantaged communities around Beijing. So especially um, kind mm. of like migrant children, migrant communities, just to make them aware of, you know, exactly what is OK and not OK and, and where you can get help. And, yeah, just, you know, really important issue to to be discussing. Yeah, I also openly. believe these I also believe these uh, dinners that you were planning, they're called spotlight dinners. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Is there a specific spotlight dinner that has left a lasting impression on you, either because of the person that was speaking or because of the message that was delivered? One of the spotlight dinners I attended, this uh, woman who had been, I mean, I don't want to mention her name just in case she's not comfortable with it, but she, you know, spoke about her story here. She'd been in China for seven years and how she managed to get this amazing job. But then as she got this amazing job, she also found out that she was pregnant and just how she kind of worked through all these different challenges that, you know, sometimes are very specific to, to women only and how she managed to kind of navigate her way and keep her job and, um, you know, raise the baby uh, how she navigated these different relationships. And I think just seeing someone else who also has maybe a different set of hardships, but also, you know, you see them as so successful and you perceive them to be like this amazing person, but then you actually realize like, you know, everyone's going through, you know, their own stuff and people may come across as, you know, really tough, really strong, really successful and whatever, but everyone has, you know, vulnerability. And I think being able to see that and seeing her share her story made me just realize that, you know, there are other people out there that are going through tough times as well, not just yourself. And so it really just helped kind of inspire me to to figure out, you know, lots of different challenges that I was going through as well. That's really interesting and really resonant. I think it's exciting to see how everything has come together for you and to see where Jing Jobs is now and where it will potentially go in the future. Yeah. What was a piece of advice someone once gave you that you found yourself giving to someone else recently? Definitely the first year that I was uh, setting everything up, I 
was struggling with time management and I was struggling with, you know, figuring out who to meet, what meetings to go to, what networking events to go to. And um, I found myself being quite selective and really just thinking like, okay, how, if I go to this networking event, how many, you know, useful people or useful contacts would I meet? And it was very like, uh, like, mm, I guess it ended up being quite selective the way that I was choosing to to go to different meetings and events and and spending my time but then transactional you know, almost it seems ex- like exactly which ended up being really harmful just to just to myself in the way that I you know uh had changed and so I think someone gave me this advice as I was kind of saying how frustrated I was and how like you know I felt myself changing and I didn't like that and she basically just said that you know every opportunities are attached to people and so every person you talk to could be life-changing and that person could be the person that would make the biggest impact on you and your business and she was like and so you need to stop being so selective and thinking and assuming that meeting this person is going to do this and, and going to that networking event is going to do that she was like every person has a potential opportunity that might work for you and she was like and you just need to whether it's just a piece of advice you know talking to that person or going to a 15-minute meeting and just venting to your friend she was like you need to stop being so I guess yeah like you said transactional about these things and so it really helped me open up my mindset and change my mindset in the sense that you know I was more open to meeting as many people as I could and more open to just listening to as many people as I could just because you know she was right like opportunities don't just heat in the face like they're attached to people people have to give you that opportunity and so yeah I think like in terms of just mindset that was that was pretty mind-blowing I just stopped thinking about you know who this person was and what role they played and and how they could you know help or whatever and it was just more about being open and talking to a person seeing them as like you know just this human being who is also awesome and could potentially one day be a really great connection in any way personal professional whatever and so yeah I think that was that was really important for me at the time um, and I just wanted to share that just because, you know, I think sometimes people can be quite tra- transactional in, in the way that they deal with other people. And in the end, it's just it's just you learn something from every single person that you interact with. It seems like a pivotal shift of mindset. So thank you so much for sharing. I just want to thank you so much for the time to come as a guest on Tough for Tide and, and speak about your experiences. No, that was awesome. I love I love sharing. And I think, um, you know, if, if anyone has entrepreneurial ideas or adventures or things that they want to pursue, like definitely, I, I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, I would love for people to not have to go through a lot of the hardships that I had to deal with um, in the first couple of years. So yeah, more than happy. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And to follow up on that, if there's any listeners that want to connect with Samantha, we will put her contact information in the podcast description. Thanks for tuning in today. Toffer Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo, editor and co-producer, and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts featured on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings, whatever could be sent to ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.